I just have been reading in the last few months again and again the repeated story that, you, as you may know, there was a surge of, uh, of uh, suicides among our military personnel, the young people in particular. And, and now what they're saying is those who are released from active duty, the veterans recently released, who are in their 20s, early 30s, are actually having a higher rate of suicide than those on active duty and even deployed in harm's way. Why? Well, they're doing studies. I can tell you what one thing is that is probably common to nearly all of them. They held on while they had their buddies around them in the midst of a combat scenario because the matter was simply survival. Survival now. I know what that's like. I've been there. And then you get home. And you're looking forward to getting home because you think it's going to be so much different, so much better. You're going to go back to the things, the life that you loved before you were in uniform, before you were in harm's way. You find that you can't go back. Geographically, you're where you were, but things have changed. And what's changed perhaps most is you. And they lose hope. They lose hope. God has a word of hope for us today. Let's turn in our scriptures and learn about that hope. Because it's the greatest hope that the world has ever seen. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Again, I'll be reading from the 1984 edition of the New International Version. I chuckle at that. People continually ask why that one. Well, it was before they tried to uh, make gender-neutral translations. They keep it a little closer to the way God presents his word to us, which is important for the family, for the church, and for us as we relate to him. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Hear then God's word, not mine. Paul writes to Titus, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and Hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Thus far in God's word, let's look to him, shall we, again in prayer. Heavenly Father, these are your words to us. Not mine. My ankles are trembling as I stand here before your people. 
Who dares to say, thus saith the Lord, unless you have spoken, unless your spirit pours out unction. So, Lord, confront me today as I speak these words and confront all of us who are here assembled. We are your people. We've come to hear a word from you by your word, through your spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The mission statement of Christ Community Church. Most of us have heard it again and again. It's worth saying again, to see the gospel change hearts, lives, and community through multiplying disciples in northwest Georgia and beyond. Or in short, changed hearts, changed lives, changed community. Our text this morning speaks to us of God's work both for us and in us. And it teaches us that God's saving work both for and in us as his people transforms our lives. Let me say that again. If I can't get the sermon into a sentence, my old preaching professor used to say, I haven't really gotten ready to preach it. So I'll say it again. God's saving work both for us and in us as his people transforms our lives. Now, notice first what God has done for us. Our salvation, the text says, is the work of the triune God. Verses 4 through 6 in total, and taken together, talk about each member of the Godhead, of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, working in concert, and yet always refers to them as God and only one. Paul, by the way, writes, uh, concludes his, uh, his second epistle that, uh, to the Corinthian church. Well, that we have. The first epistle talks about a previous one. So it's really second and third, but they're the ones we have, so we call them first and second. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the last verses of the book are that well-known benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You see, the Godhead, the triune God, is introduced to us throughout the pages of the Old Testament much more clearly with the coming of Christ. But it's always there. The Father speaks at the baptism of the Son to his Son. And the Spirit of God comes and rests upon him. In Gethsemane, in the night in which he's betrayed, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, kneels and prays, and he prays with such agony that sweat drops, as it were, of blood fall from the pores of his skin. And he cries out to the Father and speaks of the coming of the Spirit. I Thou, he, not a committee, not a small group. It's not a triad, the Hindu concept of, of uh, a Brahman and, and uh, uh, Krishna and Shiva, Vishnu and Shiva, three gods, you know, that emanated from the original Brahmatat, primordial all. No, 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 no. This is not three different gods working 
a triad. There are lots of triads. We can look around. We see triads everywhere. We don't see trinities. Never have, never have imagined it. Never could have thought of it. We only know it because God tells us. The same is true about the, about the union. Theologians use from the early centuries uh, spoke of the hypostatic union. And by that they meant the human nature and the divine nature of the one person of the Son of God. The eternal divine person of the Son of God existed from forever until forever. Jesus Christ, the writer to Hebrews says, the same yesterday and today and forever. But in point of time, he took to himself a human nature and a reasonable soul just like we have was born and we've just celebrated that season and he grew up and he grew in wisdom and stature and in knowledge and favor with God and man the divine nature of the son of God is infinite he can't grow he knows all things but the human nature did how do they cohere mystery the human nature says uh, Dr. J. Oliver Buswell Jr., one of my favorite theologians of a generation or more ago, before me anyway, and I remember learning from him in his old age. He taught my father-in-law when he was a young man. <laughs> Used to go on walks with his wife and come back having memorized another chapter in the New Testament in Greek. <laughs> Yeah, but he used to say, it's as though the human consciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ would be informed by the divine consciousness at just those times when it pleased the Father for the Spirit to bring or emerge that to his human awareness. And so he, on the one hand, can say, who touched me? He can, for example... Um, say of that day and hour of the, of the return of Christ, he could say to his disciples, of that day and hour knows no man, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, only the Father. He could say that. And yet we also are told that he knew what was in the heart of every man. He could gaze around and know what his adversaries were thinking and address the issue. He knew it. He knew it. How? The Spirit of God, says Buswell, enabled his uh, human conscience, consciousness to be uh, uh, made aware of those things he needed to for his ministry at those times. And that's it. The human nature isn't mingled. It isn't confused or mixed. Neither is it cut and separated. It's united. And we have one Savior, the Son of God, who is made flesh and tabernacles among us. And we behold his glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. The triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, notice first that it's the Father's love that initiates our salvation. Verse 5 speaks about His, and it referring there to God's mercy. Which God? God, our Savior. God is our Savior. 
later on we'll see that Christ is also referred to as God our Savior. But here it's referring in the context to God the Father and we're told that it's his kindness, his love in verse 4, his mercy in verse 5, contrasted with our works, mercies given to people who can't help themselves, who don't deserve it, and we're told not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. In John chapter 3, in the interaction between our Lord Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus says, or else the, the Apostle John has added the explanation and commentary uh, from what Jesus had said before, these words. For God so loved the world. God, the Father, so loved the world that he, the Father, gave his only begotten Son, one of a kind. That's what it means. That whoever believes in him should not perish, should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Not just life, everlasting life. I've come that they may have life, said Jesus, and have it to the full. But who purposed it? God the Father. How did he show that love? He gave his son. I have two sons. There's precious little I would give my sons for. Precious few I give my sons for. Would I give my sons for my enemies? That's what the Father did. We were enemies. Elsewhere to the Ephesians, God says, that's what you were. Here he's writing to one of his protégés, one of his, his uh, trainees who's been sent off now and, and has been told to finish doing the work of church planting that Paul had started with him. And, and this is Titus, one of, his, one of the Apostle Paul's missionary team members. And Paul writes him in the first person plural. He says, we were this way. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Titus, too? Paul, too? Yes. You and me? Think about it. We'll come back to that. But in the meantime, we're told by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died. For us, The Father loved us from eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God loved us from eternity past before the foundation of the earth and chose us in Christ. So in the purpose of God, he already had planned redemption and Calvary. In the book of Revelation, we're told of the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth before Adam and Eve sinned. In the eternal counsels of God, he knew, if you're his child this morning, he knew you. He loved you. When you were still in your sin, he loved you. He chose you. And he won't let you go. If he gave his son, he's not going to let you go. God the Father's love initiates our salvation. God the Son is the mediator of our salvation. Verse 6, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Oh, wish I had time to unpack all those words. Jesus, 
Yahweh, the Lord, the great I am, the deliverer of his people in the Exodus, saves. That's what his name means. Jesus, the Lord, Yahweh, saves. Christ, Messiah, Hamashiach, the anointed one, the one set apart by the Spirit of God to be the powerful champion and deliverer of his people. That's what they were. And this is not a an, an, a, Mashiach, a, a Mashiach, it is the HaMashiach, it is the Christ. There are many anointed ones, and they each fail, but they do something, the Lord uses them, but it, each of them have feet of clay, and in the record of redemptive history, you go through the judges and see it. Moses himself, and look at his life, they all have feet of clay. In the ancient Near East, when hero stories were told, they didn't tell anything bad about the hero. When they talked about a king, they didn't say anything about his losing any battles. By the way, do you think really that Pharaoh would have included the Exodus in his uh, uh, great stenographs and the stones? <laughs> Not likely. <laughs> And God humbled the gods of Egypt, we're told. He judged them, and he judged Pharaoh. He raised him up for the very purpose of showing his glory and delivering his people. God does that. He loves you, and he loves you in Christ, through Jesus Christ our Savior. In the context, the previous chapter, verse 13, we read, our great God and Savior. Now, the construction of this is God and Savior is one person. And then you have who it is, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. Didn't you just say that God the Father is Savior? Yes. Now Jesus Christ is Savior? Yes. Twice. See, God works in concert. He's one God. He's not a uh, three-personality schizophrenic being. He's God. And he works as one. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We don't go through saints. And the biblical word for saint anyway is believer, disciple. If you're a believer today, you're a saint. Some years ago, we had a... Uh, a person come to the Lord, and then over time he became uh, um, well uh, committed to the work of the church, and he was gifted, and he'd learned some of the scriptures, and he was uh, uh, elected as an elder of that church, and his name was John. And I used to say to him, you are St. John, Bishop of New Orleans. <laughs> Whoa, he said, how could that be? Well, because you see, his name is John which means the grace of Yahweh. And he's a believer, so he's Saint John. Every believer is. And he's an elder, and the word elder and bishop and pastor, shepherd, are used interchangeably in 1 Peter 5 and Acts chapter 20 and in other places too. Did you know that? Yes. So he was Saint John, bishop of New Orleans. That's a... Pause for thought for our session this morning. <laughs> but you see, if God the Father's love initiates our salvation, God the Son's the mediator in our salvation, it's also true that God the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ for our salvation. Verse 5 continues, He saved us, how? 
through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he, God, poured out on us generously. Elsewhere in Ephesians 4, it's the Lord Jesus who pours out the Holy Spirit. Well, which one is it? Yes. <laughs> the Father and the Son pour out the Holy Spirit, send the Holy Spirit. It's one God working three persons in the one Godhead. No one and nothing like him in the whole of the cosmos. He's holy. That means separate. Not like other things. And we're to be like him in the ways he created us to reflect, but we will never be Trinity. By the way, the uh, word rebirth here is not the same word used elsewhere for being born again. For example, in John chapter 3, unless a man be born again, said Jesus to Nicodemus, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's a different word. And there's something of the same concept here, but this word, born again, palingenesis, is used only here in this place and one other place in the whole Bible, and that is Matthew 19, 28 through 30. And I'll read it for you. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal, that's the word, of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. The renewal of all things. You see, we have been changed. We are being changed. And we shall be changed. Our salvation is at once past completed present experiential and future eschatological, that means the end time, at the coming of Christ, either for us at our death or with us at his coming. Mystery. We would never have known it if God hadn't told us. When God tells us, we can bank on it. It's something we can take with confidence. Well, we've spoken of God's work for us. What about his work in us? You see, our salvation results in transformed lives. Verse 3, at one time, and then verse 4, but when? You see, there's a before and an after here when it comes to God saving us. Our lives were fundamentally no different from others. Verse 3, let's read that. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. You get that? Now, I'll tell you what my initial reaction is when I read that. Okay? Before I reflect on it and ask God's help to do it. My first reaction is not conviction. It ought to be. What do you think my first reaction when I read that is? Oh, a pretty rough lot there. I'm glad I'm not like that. Mm -hmm. Am I the only one who ever reads passage like that and has that initial feeling? That's really not me he's talking about. 
I know some pretty nasty people like that, but I'm not like that. Most of my friends aren't like that. Even the non-Christians don't, don't fit that. That's really bad. To whom is Paul writing? He's writing to Titus, his, uh, his colleague. He was a Gentile, apparently, as a Roman name. And um, Paul was a Pharisee at one time, a persecutor of Christ. Paul knows what he's talking about. But when Paul says we, he's including at least himself and Titus. But he's also referring in this whole epistle to the believers in Crete, some of whom are living in a messed up life. He says in the first chapter, he says, uh, one of their own poets has said, uh, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, slow bellies. And then he says, that testimony's true. <laughs> Whoa. Imagine uh, how that would preach on Sunday morning to a group of people. This is what your own people say, and they're right. <laughs> oh, well, see, that's the thing. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the condition of our hearts. Just because we don't see the worst of human nature at all times in every person doesn't mean it's not naturally innately there. We're not born innocent and uh, sinless and only get messed up as society uh, starts to pollute and corrupt us. That's the assumption of Montessori school system, if you didn't know. Piaget and others in their writings started out with that genetic epistemology and so on. The, uh, the whole idea that if we could just keep the pollution of the world from these, uh, from these emerging innocent children, they would be perfect. They wouldn't be wrong because their hearts are okay, see? Sin comes from outside. The Bible says, no, it doesn't. It may, but it comes from within each of us. You want to see what happens when the Spirit of God withdraws his restraining hand from unbelievers for a moment? Turn to the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, and we read that God looked down and he saw what mankind had become, and this is by the time of Noah. He says that there was no one who sought after God. He says, every imagination of the intent of their heart was only evil continually. And the earth was full of violence. If you remove the restraining work of the Holy Spirit, and we're left to ourselves, we don't build civilizations. It's the work in the common grace of God of, restra of restraining that sin, even among sinners, that allows some semblance of law and order and, and civilizations to grow. But it's no substitute for the gospel. Paul is saying, recognize your own heart, brother. Recognize your own heart, sister. We can't look down on those who are not yet with us in the community of faith. We need to understand and care. God loved us when we were enemies. We need to do that too. Well, that's what we were like.
but our lives have been given a life-transforming hope. Verse 7, so that having been, it's past, justified, past tense, by his grace, not earned, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Hope of eternal life. Not far from the tomb of Lazarus, whom he would shortly raise from the dead, our Lord Jesus said to one of his sisters, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he asked, do you believe this? That's the question for each of us as we shortly come to the Lord's table. Do you believe this, that when Jesus came into the world, he lived the perfect life that you haven't and can't, and then offered that innocent life willingly at the hands of wicked men who nailed him to the tree, to the cross, to execute him after the mockery of a kangaroo court trial? And God, worst of all, laid on him, Isaiah 53 says, the iniquity of us all. So that hell comes to earth at only one place in history, on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he died, if you're a believer today, for you, for me, by name. And we can only come to the table that we will shortly partake in if we recognize we have nothing. The hymno, hymn, hymnist wrote, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I remember talking, going out into, uh, we lived in Nairobi, our youngest was born there, and, and uh, we traveled out into Katuya district, a country district, and went to a little place called Maru, a mission station, talked there with a missionary couple who'd been there for 30 years. Jack was the uh, man's name, and he told me this story. He said, oh, not so long ago, he said, uh, their word reached us here that there was an old woman living alone. She was a widow with no children to care for her. Out in the rural area, she was sick and likely to die. No one would help her. Jack said, well, all we could do was put everything we could in, in our Land Cruiser. Toyota Land Cruiser back then was uh, used in the bush a lot in Africa. And, and three extra tires. And that's because they had to drive over trackless uh, country. There's no roads there. And the acacia thorns are over two inches long. They're like nails. He used those extra tires. They didn't call them flats. They call them punctures for a reason. <laughs> and he got there, found her hut, walked in, and it's maybe 10 feet around, if that, and not even that. And, and she's uh, lying on the dirt of the floor of the, of the hut. It's a mud hut, thatched uh, roof. And, and she's got this thin mat. She's curled up, weak sick. And Jack came in and he spoke to her in, Muk in uh, Kikamba, the language, and this Mukamba woman uh, turned up and, and didn't show any expression. 
She was resigned to her fate. And, and so he helped her, brought her some water and some nourishment, some gruel, not, not too much at once. She hadn't eaten for a while. And she regained some of her strength and was able to sit up. And, and uh, Jack asked her, Ma'am, in her language, what will happen to you when you die? And anguish flooded over her face. And she pulled herself around, spat upon the dirt of the floor of that hut, and ground the spittle into the dirt with her heel, and pointed to it, said, That, that is what will happen to me when I die. And you feel the hopelessness? The hopelessness of that woman and many like her. Oh, there are some that do not think they're hopeless. I was reading just very recently an article on John Maynard Keynes, the, the economist, uh, supposedly, and, and uh, uh, investor who's written a lot of things that uh, many people agree with and many others don't. But he lived a somewhat profligate life in certain ways. He was a work workaholic. That can be an addiction. And he, he also um, fell in with a group of people, uh, George Bernard Shaw and other uh, famous skeptics who would ridicule Christianity. And he lived his life that way. And uh, he took a, a male lover, and uh, according to the article, and so on. And at the end of his life, he's dying. Someone asked him, do you have any regrets? You know what he said? I mean, what an opportunity. There's the thief that's dying on the cross. What an opportunity. He was saved at the last minute. What an opportunity. One last opportunity. Do you have any regrets? You know his answer? I should have had more champagne. How sad. At least the woman, the Mukamba woman, understood where she was. And Jack was able to share the gospel with that woman. And King kept coming back. That's a long trip to do it. And, and using time and, and the resources of, of uh, his provisions to provide for her. And over the course of time, two things happened. One was... She came to accept Jesus as her Savior, to ask Christ to forgive her from, for her sin and to be in charge of her life, the Lord of whatever life she had left. She gave herself un, unqualified to, to Jesus and trusted him. And the second thing that happened is she did, not long thereafter, die. Go into the presence of the Jesus she'd just come to know. Her funeral wasn't that where spittle being ground in by a heel on the dirt. Her funeral was attended by the Christian community for miles and miles around rejoicing in the goodness of a God who as the psalmist says puts the lonely in families. The best family of all is the forever family of Jesus Christ. No one, Jesus said, can take them out of my Father's hand.
I and the Father, he said, are one. The scripture teaches that our salvation is the work of our triune God and that our salvation results in transformed lives. And those two principles together underscore our truth here, that God's saving work both for and in us as his people transforms our lives. May our lives here at Christ Community be lived out trophies of gratitude to God for his grace that the world may see a difference in us as his people. Let's pray.